0: It's no more cheap or expensive to do something cheerful, bright, and bold with ink, as it is to do something dowdy and humdrum. So just because you don't have Coca-Cola's marketing spend doesn't mean that your five square inches of ink use can't be spectacular. Ink just costs things, so you might as well cheer the world up with it.
1: Hello, Alex. Hello, Ivan. This is episode one of our podcast about truth and spectacle, which is exciting and a little nervy. We decided to make this podcast because we know a lot of people in very different industries and disciplines. They all use truth to create wonderful and meaningful things in the world. And we found out there is not one answer and there's so much to discover. And this is our effort to share what we find. We start by looking at truth and spectacle from a designer's perspective. Silas Amos was strategic director of JKR's London and New York design studios. He now runs his own show and has worked with Budweiser, HP, Eve Sleep, Unilever, and the artist, Sir Blake. We also have a lot to learn about podcasting, and so we apologise for the sound quality. In this case, truth definitely beats spectacle. Oh, Hello, Silas. the people who don't know you yet, uh, can you give us a little part of history?
0: I've been a designer since going to art college, I guess, and then working professionally for 30 years. And somewhere along the way, with age, uh, you end up doing more talking than doing, and then I did a little, we've got called a strategist, and I don't really see much difference between being strategic and being a designer. They're both about planning. So I colour in and think for a living. That sounds
1: like a really good living, actually.
0: It is a pretty good living on the, on the, good, days. <laughs> on the good
1: days. You worked at a big agency for a long time, mm-hmm. 25 years' worth. Yeah. How have you found being out of agency life?
0: Well, there's classically, grass is always greener in both sides, right? When you work at a big agency, you wish you had a bit more freedom. Uh, When you work for yourself, making your own cup of tea, so to speak, you sometimes wish you had the support of a load of other people to bolster you. But broadly speaking, I love it.
1: In the last few years, you've spent a lot of time working with digital printing. Uh, The ability to create one-offs and generative art has been something that you've explored. What fascinates you about that world?
0: Yeah, if you wanted to sum up what digital printing is, it's a lot more agile than old printing because it's not on metal plates, it's mm. lasers firing molecules. So, I think it's painting with light. So, it's more fluid, it's more yeah. flexible, it's more agile. I got interested in it because, coming from packaging, if I was doing a job today as a conversation, it wouldn't hit a shelf for two years, probably. Whereas with digital printing, it can hit the shelf kind of next week. So, that freed me up. So, I got excited about it for that. And then if you want to poke underneath that, there's all sorts of clever stuff with algorithms and the like that can generate iterative versions of an artwork without you having to do the heavy lifting. So you can have 2,000 versions of something at the click of a button. Obviously, like anything in life, you can have 2,000 versions of something crap or 2,000 versions of something good. The proof's still in the pudding. The interesting thing in this, culturally, is that the once upon a time, if you wanted to see art or communication, you had to go to the source. If you wanted to hear music, you had to sit with the guy in the wig playing the harpsichord. If you wanted to see art, you had to go and see it on someone's wall. Then we got to publishing, so then you, got, you bought a record. Or you uh, looked at an art print. And then in the modern era, if you wanted to take the music, you could remix it on your garage band or whatever. You can mess around with it. And there wasn't really an equivalent for the visual world of that remixing at the click of a button of of visuals Uh, Mm. and I think that digital printing is allowing that so for me it's you know there are good remixes there are bad remixes and the things that don't need remixing in the first place but really good remixes can transform something
1: with the idea that you now have mass limited editions Mm. so one print at a time that is unique by an artist or designer or by a brand Mm. does that change how you approach that project in terms of your starting point?
0: Uh, it depends, right? Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with decoration. Wallpaper is fine. That's mm. why people put wallpaper up. No one's really tackled art meets unique one-off editions yet. I think it's a huge industry when you look at the print industry generally or how Taschen could produce a $600 coffee table book. There's an aura to it if, if it or parts of it are genuinely unique. But in order to make that unique thing interesting, it has to be purposeful. So for me, uh, an obvious analogy would be, if you look at, say, Max Ernst's collages from Surrealism, where, you know, a parrot's talking to a pair of scissors or something, there's interesting juxtapositions in that, which you can see is an ingredient for variability, which could throw up an interesting idea. Whereas if you're just saying mine's blue and yours is red, kind of so what? So it's about having an idea in the first place of something you're trying to shuffle, rather than uh, shuffling for its own sake. Although, as I say, decoration is also nice.
1: You recently got to work with Sir Peter Blake, the English pop artist who's best known for co-creating the sleeve design for the Beatles' Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. What did he think of digital printing?
0: Sir Peter Blake, like, just because he's great, he's one of those, you know, you should never meet your heroes, but actually you should, if they're nice like him. And uh, he had the loveliest point of view, which is we talked about using his kind of trademark, you know, iconography, star, heart, target, and putting it into this kind of digital blender. And his line to it was, so, you're going to take my artwork, and uh, it's going to say hello to the machine, and the machine's going to say hello back and have a conversation. And it's like, I love that, because only someone in their 80s, I think, could come up with such a, a lucid encapsulation of what this thing's about. So, yeah, that was fun.
1: You've worked with a tremendous amount of clients on a huge variety of design projects. In your experience, what is the role of truth in helping you get to the best work?
0: Do I find it easier if there's a truth at the heart of something when I'm telling a story? Yeah. I think irrespective of HP or branding or anything I do, yes, it's a lot easier. And I could give you plenty of examples of that if you want. But I don't think it's imperative. And it depends, I can only see creatively as far as the nose on the end of my face, so it depends on what I'm doing today. If you'd asked me this question a week ago, I'd have probably come back very high mindedly going, without truth there is no, no anything. Yeah. Today, it just so happens I'm working on a brand which has got no brand truth, and no product truth, and it's built on effectively a, a bad lie. And you know what? It's brilliant, because it's just so liberating. It's like, the, what they're doing is they're not telling their untruth very well. So I'm having a great time going like, if we're gonna lie? Let's lie really creatively, really obviously, take it to such a degree that the, the, the story becomes the point. Yeah. And, and I'm having the most fun of that all month by just sitting there inventing bullshit in a creative way. So I guess the short answer to do you need truth is it helps, but not having it is equally fun, so long as you accept that you're telling a lie and make that lie enjoyable. The hypothesis of what you sent me about the Kubrick's line that if, if you don't have a truth, you better have a good spectacle, it suggests this kind of either or, and of course it's a blend. When I worked on Budweiser back at JKR for, god, four or five years, I spent those four or five years trying to do the design strategy, and it's not like you can go in day one with four words and everyone buys it, because it's a multi-billion dollar brand. Even if you were right, you couldn't buy it, you just couldn't. So we were doing the thinking for years. And for the first couple of years, there was no real point. We haven't landed on what the truth was, that had implications for design. So same brand, same product, same design team, but it kind of looked okay. And then when we landed on a truth that worked for us, that we could understand as designers, it just ignited it. So it's the same everything, but those four words on a bit of paper just took us to a place where we could be much more spectacular. I guess that's the point, but otherwise we've always had tons of money It always had a massive visual footprint. But the spectacle we were creating was kind of built around something that wasn't quite landed. And once we'd landed on what the centre was, the spectacle was more spectacular.
1: How did you know you were onto a truth?
0: You feel it in your water. It's an instinct. And it's like any truth, isn't it? It's a a visceral thing. And if it's a good truth, as opposed to a boring truth, you get excited and you want to do it in your own time, in a notepad, rather than grinding it out. Eve mattress when we took that on had a big sales deck and in that big sales deck, this is before it really existed anything other than, a, other than a pitch to investors in that with the line every great day starts the night before that's a brilliant truth you knew exactly how to design to that that second what color it needed to be how it should lay out blah, blah 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 so i think you just know it you just get excited by it it inspires you and proper truth inspires you
1: What do you think gives a project the best chance of success?
0: The projects I'm more interested in are the ones where there's an interesting question, an opportunity to make a difference, a chance to do something cool and work with some cool people. And by cool, I just mean talented other individuals who are nice. But really, it's the ones where there's an idea that can be elastic, because I get really excited about how far you can stretch the idea. Those are the projects I'm interested in. Sometimes you're given questions where almost the metric before you start is predisposed to be humdrum, or the, the ambition's not there, and they're the ones that are less interesting. You know, so you're only as good as the question and the client.
1: Can you give me an example of one of your cool clients?
0: Best client I've had in the last couple of years is a lady called Bogdana on the Red Red stuff because she just got it in her heart. She was more she was more excited and ambitious than I was, and she was nice. So we did some really cool stuff together because there was no limit from anyone creatively or in ambition terms and it punched a its way i think it sounds like soft soaping when you go oh, everyone can be creative and you know we embrace that virtue too but the truth is everyone can be creative she was more creative on that project than i was in a lot of good ways and fantastic so what you're really looking for is kindred spirits isn't it i think that's the best work to put in a nutshell kindred spirits
1: so how do you help people who don't think of themselves as creative see the possibilities that you do?
0: I think, if I have to sum it up as, well, when I try and sum this stuff up to clients, right? Ink costs ink. It's no more cheap or expensive to do something cheerful, bright and bold with ink as it is to do something dowdy and humdrum. So just because you don't have Coca-Cola's marketing spend doesn't mean that your five square inches of ink use can't be spectacular. Ink just costs ink, so you might as well cheer the world up with it. You have
1: a, a use of colour that is on the spectacular range. I don't know why, but when you go through your portfolio, you like a lot of fold.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I'm so grey and dowdy, but I like the colour. I, I, you know why? It's really simple. It's the bloody Citizen Kane Rosebud thing. I grew up in an era, I remember Pop Art in Windsor & Newton, Inc. I like Alan Aldridge, He's my rosebud. That's That's what I remember growing up. I remember those those boxes you used to get from paper Shakes that were coloured hearts and it, they look like Quality Street things. So I like colours because of that. It surprises me when I look at the work that I've, I guess art directed that it's really colourful because I'm dowdy. Maybe that's why I like the colour in the work.
1: Last question, Silas. Are you more truth or spectacle?
0: Am I more truth or spectacle? It depends on which side of the bed got out that day and what the question is.
1: But I like a bit of both. We hope you enjoyed the interview with Silas as much as we did. If you have any questions or comments, you can find us at truthinspectacle.com or LinkedIn, just search for Alexandra Mecklenburg or Ivan Pulse. Special thanks to Silas Amos for sharing his insights and ideas, and make sure you look up at his work at Silas Extra thanks to Rob and Richard for their infinite patience. This interview was recorded at Blooms in London. This has been a Truth and Spectacle production.